This is Zane Horowitz, and welcome to the Oregon Poison Center Journal Club for May 2007. Today we're talking about contrast nephropathy and some of the agents that cause it and some of the things we can do to help prevent it, and a little bit of an update on um, gadolidium, which we had thought for years was reasonably safe, but now we're finding is perhaps uh, another reason for um, uh, renal-induced problems with imaging studies. But first, we're going to start out talking about um, some background um, physiology and history about uh, the nephrotoxic effects of contrast media. This is from a Clintox article from 2004 by Andrew and Berg. So, Nate, I'll let you start with that one. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, so as Zane mentioned, this is from the Journal of Toxicology, Clintox, uh, done in 2004. Um, and this was by uh, two... Um, uh, physicians from the Poison Information Center out in uh, Oslo, Norway, um, and the title of the article was Nephrotoxic Effects of X-ray Contrast Media. Um, and the reason why this uh, topic was brought up is because that X-ray contrast uh, media use is actually um, becoming pretty prevalent uh, in medicine. Um, and they mentioned that no other drug uh, is given in such large doses. Uh, they say that an average dose of 100 milliliters of contrast media um, has a concentration of 300 milligrams of iodine per milliliter. Um, so you're using about 30 grams of iodine and about 60 grams total of uh, contrast media. Um, they estimate that uh, worldwide the use of contrast media is estimated to be about uh, 60 million doses a year. Um, they have been working on developing safer um, uh, types of contrast media, but uh, it still remains a problem uh, causing uh, nephrotoxicity. Uh, they mentioned that contrast media is the third leading cause of hospital-acquired acute renal failure, and that's uh, only after hypotension and surgery. And one of the problems um, with uh, nephro nephrotoxicity is that it can prolong hospital stay. It adds cost to medical care. Uh, may uh, cause a need for dialysis, and actually they say it even may, may be fatal. Um, uh, just in their introduction, they say one of the most important risk groups um, uh, they found uh, to be people with impaired renal function, uh, especially people with uh, diabetic nephropathy. Um, so the reason they did this article was to um, talk about the, the pathogenesis and risk factors and uh, possible means of prevention. <coughs> Um, so all of the currently used uh, contrast media is based on a triiodinated benzene ring that's uh, shown in figure one. Um, the first generation was a high osmolar ionic uh, contrast media abbreviated HOCM. Um, and it was a molecule, like, as I mentioned before, three iodine atoms. And it disassociated into two particles when it was in solution. It has a pretty high osmolarity, about 1,500 milliosmoles per kilo. Um, and, you know, giving uh, such a high osmotic load um, can cause uh, some pain and heat sensations just because of general vasodilation. Um, they found to be both nephrotoxic in both animals and humans. Uh, so in an attempt to reduce the nephrotoxicity, um, uh, they uh, replaced the carboxylic group with the non-disassociating hydroxylic groups, um, which dropped the uh, osmolarity by about half. Um, and that was uh, first introduced in the 1970s. And they found that it did uh, reduce the rates of nephrotoxicity, but uh, they still were noticing in high-risk patients that the incidence was still pretty high. 
Um, so then they went on to develop a non-ionic uh, di dimeric uh, contrast media um, that were actually, they're hypoosmolar with plasma, but they add electrolytes uh, to make them isosmolar with plasma. Um, again, they've noticed a decreased incidence of um, contrast, you know, uh, nephrotoxicity. Uh, however, again, these, you know, effects still do occur. Um, and they list some of the common names uh, over in the, on the next page in Table 1. And if you look at the one that we still use a lot of is iodamide, which is still a high osmolar contrast medium. So despite the safer ones available, the newer ones tend to be more expensive and they tend to somewhat be use restricted by the radiology department and radiology groups. And um, you really have to sort of discuss with them why the patient may be at risk and need some of these newer isoosmolar agents. Um, so they uh, say that uh, the contrast media are generally small molecules and they have low protein binding and lipid solubility and are freely filtered by the glomerular basement membrane. Uh, and about more than 99% of the injected uh, media is excreted by the kidneys uh, simply by glomerular filtration alone. Um, so uh, the next section goes on to talk about the pathogenesis of uh, uh, contrast nephrotoxicity. Um, and it's kind of, they're kind of unusual in that they induce renal vasoconstriction, which is unique only to the kidney because in the rest of the body it actually induces vasodilation. Um, the, the contrast media also stimulates uh, renal vasoconstrictive endothelial factors like endothelium, adenosine, calcium ions, and oxygen free radicals. Um, so the renal vasoconstriction subsequently reduces uh, renal blood flow and that, you know, obviously is going to decrease your glomerular flow rate. Um, contrast media also increases diuresis, renal metabolic activity, and oxygen consumption. Um, they've also noticed that um, the uh, isoosmotic uh, contrast media can still increase intratubular pressure um, uh, because of a high viscosity of the substance. Uh, and that also has been shown to cause uh, intratubular obstruction in rats, although they really haven't seen a whole lot of that in humans. Um, they've also theorized that it does also uh, have some direct cell toxicity. Um, as evidence, uh, they've uh, seen um, you know, the contrast media in some of the, prox the proximal tubular cells. Um, so the next section talks about uh, how you make the diagnosis. Um, and it's pretty much based uh, solely on a change in serum creatinine levels. Um, they've noticed that creatinine levels peak within one to two days after contrast uh, administration in patients with normal renal function, uh, and the increase lasts about one to five days. However, in patients with, with reduced uh, renal function, uh, actually the serum creatinine peaks later and actually lasts for seven days or longer. Um, nephrotoxicity is usually non-oligoric uh, in most cases, although sometimes it can be uh, irreversible. Um, so they have two kind of definitions on the uh, size of the effect. There's a minor and major effect. Minor defect effect is defined as an increase in serum creatinine of greater than 0.5 milligrams per deciliter, which is what we use in the United States, or an increase of over 25% above baseline. Um, and that's how they define the, you know, what has traditionally been 
considered a contrast ne nephrotoxicity in most studies. Uh, they go on to define a major effect as an increase of serum creatinine greater than 1.0 milligrams per deciliter or greater than 50% compared with baseline. Um, so why does this, or what does this mean? Um, or how is this clinically useful? Well, they actually uh, did a study um, and they identified 181 inpatients who were undergoing contrast media procedures between 1981 and 1989. And they um, uh, looked at the patients that had an increase in serum creatinine of greater than 25%, and then they <laughs> compared those to match controls. The mortality in the control group was 7% compared to a mortality of 34% in the contrast media group. So obviously, you know, uh, played a pretty big role. Um, uh, so the next uh, section goes on to talk about some st uh, recent studies um, of, you know, contrast nef nephro the nephro the toxicity, um, and tried to identify people at more at risk, um, and or you know uh, what is the epidemiology um, of the nephrotoxicity, and they they say in healthy people. Um, contrast media administration uh, presents a pretty low risk, less than 2%. Um, Intra-arterial administration seems to be more toxic, um, but again, the risk is still pretty low. Um, other risk factors uh, they found to be um, high dose, uh, repeated doses with a short interval or a high osmolar concentration of contrast media, so some of the earlier uh, contrast media types. Um, the more risk factors, the more likely the patients are obviously going to develop uh, in, uh, injury. Um, so they estimate the number of patients at special risk for contrast nephrotoxicity to be between 3.5 to 15.5 percent. And again, you know, as I mentioned kind of in the beginning, they have shown that the most important uh, risk factors seem to be to reduce renal function um, and the next uh, would be diabetes. Um, so they've kind of estimated the risk, again, in normal, healthy people to be about 2%, um, but uh, up to 38% in diabetics with uh, serum creatinine. And they list of greater than 103 micromoles per liter, which correlates to about a uh, 1.5 milligram per deciliter um, in the units that we use. Um, they, you know, go on to say in studies that they have shown that um, the introduction of the newer contrast agents has substantially reduced the risk. Um, however, you know, even even um, you know, with the newer agents, uh, the risk uh, they they feel that the incidence of uh, nephrotoxicity after angiography is still pretty high, somewhere between twelve and a half and fifty percent, which has been reported in several studies. Um, let's see. They go on to talk about uh, the. Uh, Isoosmolar contrast media that uh, has a better imaging effect and has less clinical side effects like pain and heat sensations. Um, let's see. I don't think we necessarily need to talk anything more about other studies. Um, so then they go on to talk about risk factors and prevention. So they just mentioned, you know, careful selection of patients. Um, if you identify a patient that's at high risk, um, you definitely want to try to control the serum creatinine, um, try to control or uh, avoid volume depletion, hypotension, hypoxia. Um, 
Uh, you also want to consider other risk, risk factors for you know a decreased glomerular flow rate, such as old age, consists of heart failure. Um, they mentioned that multiple myeloma should not be considered a risk factor if patient is well hydrated. Has been shown from a study. Uh, you also want to be careful um, administering other nephrotoxic drugs, and they list NSAIDs, aminoglycosides, cyclosporine, and ACE inhibitors as some several example examples. And then after the um, procedure, they say that you know uh, diuresis should be monitored as well as serum creatinine, and they recommend uh, the first day in low risk patients and up to seven days in high risk patients. Um, they also go on to say that you obviously want to try to limit the, um, the dose um, that's given um, for the study. Uh, and they recommend less, uh, less than 300 milliliters in a uh, patient with normal serum creatinine and between 100 and 200 milliliters um, depending on serum creatinine values. And they also recommend a uh, five-day interval between two um, procedures that use contrast media. Um, they then talk about... Oh. I was going to say, just considering our, our approach to diagnosis in the ER where everything is time compressed, this is, you know, this is great if you're in the hospital and you're usually going to be admitted for a week, which even that doesn't happen nowadays. But everything is, you know, you come in, you have multiple diagnostic considerations, and there's an issue where you may need to have three or four different scans done. It's not unusual, and you may be on some of these drugs, which you really can't hold. Um, you know, their ACE inhibitor or some of these other things. So we don't ever measure it per their recommendations. You know, we don't follow up with their creatinine bumps. Um, you know, a day or two later, or if they have any problems, or if any of their medications need to be adjusted as a result of them. So I think it's probably a, an issue that's out there that's A, right for study, and B, if we look, we probably will find more problems than we currently understand to exist. Yeah. But then on the other hand, though, we aren't necessarily giving contrast media to patients, and I don't know if they have a, certainly have a cutoff here, but, you know, the radiologists are very hesitant to give any type of, you know, intravenous uh, administration to patients with a creatinine of, you know, 1.5 or 1.7. I'm not sure if there's an absolute cutoff, but you know how we always, you know, say, well, we'll just do a oral contrast only scan if someone has a, you know, rather high, you know, uh, serum creatinine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they get done sometimes without that, but you know, but you're right. It's it's good to rehydrate them first and look where they're at and ask which other studies are available. And we'll so, talk about the other options so here. So, speaking second. of hydration, um, they actually. Uh, kind of reviewed some of the data in regards to uh, uh, whether or not hydration actually uh, helps reduce the risk of the contrast nephrotoxicity. Um, so they looked at one study where Solomon randomized 79 patients uh, with renal insufficiency who were going to be uh, catheterized or, or who are under going to undergo cardiac angiography um, to prophylactic treatment with 0.45% saline given at one milligram per kilogram per hour for 24 hours. Uh, they also looked at saline plus mannitol or saline plus furosemide. And the incidence of uh, nephropathy was significantly lower in the group treated with saline alone. Um, they also, uh, in another study, looked at treatment with 0.9% saline um, versus just unrestricted oral fluids and actually found that the group treated with 0.9% uh, saline, although they didn't... Uh, list the amount or the rate, um, but they found that that, that group uh, also 
had a lower incidence of uh, nephropathy as compared to the group with that just uh, took oral fluids. Um, they then actually tried to look at the optimal saline infusion. Um, they looked at uh, saline or 0.9% saline versus 0.45% uh, saline or sodium chloride plus glucose. Um, and uh, the, actually, the data suggested that just uh, volume expansion um, were the most important uh, factors for prevention. They, they didn't talk about using a bolus of fluid prior to the contrast medium and then and then using the continuous infusion of saline afterwards, right? That wasn't compared. No, yeah. actually that wasn't. Which is the huge criticism. In yeah, some of these articles. Yeah. I mean, some of these people come in, whatever their disease process is, they're already Right, they're already depleted. volume depleted. So I think, you know, the first thing is you want to make them euvolemic first and then follow whatever their, their pre-hydration protocol is if you can wait 24 hours to do a study with contrast in a high-risk patient. Yeah. So, yeah, actually, you know, out of uh, their review of these articles, their recommendations is that are that pa patients in the hospital should be hydrated with IV saline, a milliliter per kilo per hour for up to 24 hours. They say for outpatients, oral hydration should be given before the procedure followed by intravenous saline for six hours, which, again, I don't think... Yeah, any of us in the emergency department that do. doesn't work. Yeah. But, but we'll talk about what the options are in a second. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, the next section they go on to talk about uh, N-acetylcysteine, and we're actually presenting a number of other articles, so I'm just going to kind of skip that section. Although, as a groundwork, I'll say that sort of the, the early articles, the dosing that was sort of worked out, they took mention there, is, is 600 milligrams on the day of procedure, and then 600 milligrams... The, um, the day before and the day after, and it's in the kind of low dose N-acetylcysteine, just to have a groundwork to compare to what we're going to talk about next. So yeah, and their last section they just mentioned prophylactic hemodialysis. Um, oh, and they also actually in the last section, yeah, they um, have looked at or they have reviewed other articles that have looked at calcium channel blockers, theophylline, endothelial receptor antagonists, atrial natriuretic peptide, antioxidants, or dopamine. Um, but they have uh, found that the effects of those kind of drugs pretty seem to be uh, seem to be marginal, uh, if actually any benefit. Uh, so they don't necessarily recommend any other type of medications in the prevention of uh, nephropathy. Um, and then in the last section, they do mention the prophylactic hemodialysis, um, and they 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 question whether or not you know starting uh, hemodialysis immediately after um, the uh, examination um, may not necessarily reduce the risk um, just because of, uh, you know, the, the amount of time that it would take to start the hemodialysis, and they think that the contrast media would already have pre been presented to the kidneys. Um, so they don't necessarily think that um, there's going to be necessarily be any benefit um, of prophylactic uh, hemodialysis after contrast uh, administration. So that's pretty much uh, this article. All right. Well, well, good. So keep in mind when we talk about the other articles, which generation of compound we're using in them, whether it's first, second, or third, high, low, or isoosmotic, and then the doses of NAC that we're going to talk about and what other uh, adjuncts are used. So the first set of articles, we're going to kick it over here to Yogan Patel to talk about two articles that just used uh, different IV NAC strategies first. So we're going to start with uh, the rapid study um, 
which is a rapid protocol for the prevention of contrast-induced renal dysfunction. Uh, this was from the Journal of American College of Cardiology in 2003, and this was actually published by a group of researchers out of the UK. Um, and essentially building on uh, what uh, Nate was just referring to, uh, this study was basically looking at uh, patients that presented uh, in the emergency department uh, or to the hospital acutely for coronary angiography or intervention. And the plan was to uh, test a rapid protocol uh, of IV N-acetylcysteine uh, to try to uh, assess the reduction of uh, RCIN or radio, or radio contrast induced nephropathy. Uh, again, they uh, initially set the study up by saying that the rate of RCIN has been as high as 15% in the literature associated with uh, coronary angiography and intervention uh, for numerous reasons, many of which Nate already mentioned, including pre-existing renal dysfunction, diabetic nephropathy, uh, or the administration of nephrotoxic drugs uh, like contrast medium. Uh, for the purposes of this study, uh, a non-ionic isoosmolar medium was studied, which was uh, iodixinol, um, which is, I believe, one of the newer generation. Yeah, so um, the third generation, so one of the better One of the better drugs. drugs. Yeah. Um, so the way it was set up basically was that they uh, had initial power calculations where they uh, needed approximately 80 patients per each group. Uh, and this was a prospective study that wanted to study uh, 80 patients in two arms. Um, the one arm was uh, placebo, which was basically uh, one milliliter per kilogram of uh, normal saline for 12 hours pre and post contrast exposure. So that was their control. And then the uh, test arm was basically using a protocol for rapid uh, IV NAC infusion. And this was set up as 150 milligrams per kilogram in a half liter of normal saline 30 minutes prior to the contrast bolus. Uh, this was then followed by a four hour infusion of an additional 50 milligrams per kilogram of NAC in another half liter. So they got uh, over the span of uh, four and a half hours, uh, they got approximately, four and a half to five hours, they got approximately uh, 200 milligrams per kilogram of uh, NAC and one liter of uh, saline. And that was in the test arm. Again, the control is one per kilo of normal saline for 12 hours pre and post. Um, the uh, test group also did get saline uh, post-procedure. Uh, so after this bolus was done, they continued to get a basal rate of infusion. So um, initially, they randomized, uh, they had about 40 patients randomized to each group, and the study was uh, stopped early, was halted early uh, after the interim analysis. Um, as we start to go through it, uh, the first study, the, I mean, the first table uh, talks, speaks to the baseline characteristics of the two treatment groups, and we can tell that uh, they're pretty well randomized. There, was, there were 41 people in the NAC group and 39 people in the control group. Um, they appeared to be age-matched, gender-matched, uh, all had uh, similar rates of diabetes. They were on some medications, including calcium channel blockers and diuretics and ACE inhibitors. I should mention that uh, important exclusions for patients in the study included acute renal failure, dialysis, uh, NSAIDs within the previous 24 hours, hypotension with a systolic pressure less than 90, or valvular heart disease. Uh, so all of and, and, and excuse me and heart failure. Uh, so all of these were all these patients were excluded. So you had relatively healthy patients 
with some underlying um, disease that came in for coronary angiography. Uh, the doses were, as I had mentioned before, uh, it is important to note that there was the control group did not receive a bolus of IV fluid and only received the one per kilo uh, maintenance that has been studied previously um, and reported previously. The results uh, were uh, interesting. Uh, they had defined a, uh, an acute contrast-induced reduction in renal function uh, as an increase in the serum creatinine concentration by 25% uh, at either two or four days after contrast administration. Um, so that is one of their defined uh, outcomes. In looking at the two groups, uh, the control group, the mean serum creatinine increased from 1.75 to 1.81. Uh, and then 1.80 at 48 and 96 hours respectively. Uh, in the IV NAC group, the serum creatinine decreased from 1.85 to 1.77 and 1.79 at 48 and 96 hours respectively. Um, they also uh, commented a little bit on the overall incidence of radio contrast-induced nephropathy and uh, reported it to be um, less than 5% in the NAC group and 20% in the control group. Uh, as far as adverse uh, reactions, there were uh, some itching, flushing, and kind of rash minor reactions uh, in the NAC group in about six patients. Uh, this was within 30 minutes of infusion. Which uh, is very similar, we'll be using the same protocol to treat for acetaminophen toxicity. Exactly. We see the same incidence and same problems. Um, and uh, there was one case, I believe, of pulmonary edema. There were actually two cases of pulmonary edema in each group, uh, one that appeared to be temporally related to administration of the NAC. Um, uh, but the, the, the gusto of the study basically comes in the discussion, and their major point, again, is that using this rapid protocol uh, of IV NAC infusion uh, with excuse me, within uh, normal saline, that this decreased significantly the rate of radiocontrast-induced uh, nephropathy. Uh, these, again, were all patients undergoing angiography or percutaneous coronary intervention. Um, the, uh, all the original dosing studies for IV NAC had been based on uh, its use in uh, paracetamol or acetaminophen overdoses. Um, that being said, this is probably... A, uh, significant, a pretty significant dose when we think about 200 milligrams per kilogram of NAC um, for a uh, 70 kilogram individual. Um, uh, this is significantly higher than the study that I'm going to talk about after this, which is the uh, NEJM article, the NAC and Contrast-Induced Nephropathy in Primary Angioplasty um, Review. So, but, but NAC I mean, is a pretty safe drug. I mean, usually, right. enormously huge doses. You do have side effects with it, but this is the same amount that we would give to a Tylenol overdose Over patient, so I think it's not a, a, a dose we've been unfamiliar with. The doses that were used in other studies that we talk about have been much, much Small. lower. But again, I guess they, just to re reiterate the number, the, the incidence of nephropathy was 12.5% in the, in the hydration group, and it was only 5% in the NAC group, and that reached the p-value at their first statistical monitoring break to the point where they felt they couldn't go on and do the second half of the study and get but up to 80 patients. They really should have three arms, Yes. Dr. Gordon, don't steal my thunder. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think so that the big criticism with this article is that you have one group that has this basal rate 
of saline infusion. Then you have the other group that gets this huge bolus of fluid and knack. Mm. And uh, you know what you're left wondering is: is it just the bolus of fluid that they get that's that's really driving this effect? Um, and this, uh, and I've actually heard from several radiologists at OHSU that they feel that fluid bolusing uh, after contrast infusion helps to quote unquote flush the kidneys, and that may push a lot of the uh, benefit. So there was no mention of that in this study. They did actually acknowledge that in their study limitations uh, and said, again, uh, they believe that they thought it was more likely that the acetylcysteine was responsible for their, fi for their findings than the rate of fluid administration. Based on nothing. Based yeah. on nothing. It's just baffling, though. I mean, they go to all this trouble right. to do this very good study. Yeah. And it's a very simple arm. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, my calculation is correct, and that group got four times the amount of fluid that the placebo or saline group got. Because they, yeah, because they too got the basal infusion, but no. got an additional bolus. I think one of the other things too is that they took pretty healthy people. Right, because they excluded they again. excluded sick people. Right. But but not but people had to have an elevated creatinine to get in there. They all had to yeah. have a creatinine about one point one point eight or one point three six. One point three six. Sorry. Yeah. I, I think the other thing that points to hydration as the answer is that the creatinine actually decreases. Right. So I mean, there's no postulation that the NAC should decrease the creatinine. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's just protected as right. against the nephropathy. So yeah. So, so they, they demonstrated that good hydration <laughs> works. Works. But I think, you know, what you just said is true, but I, I think, you know, I, I have a little issue with them saying that it decreased the creatinine. When you look at the numbers, you know, we're talking about changes in the third significant digit in creatinine, yes. and right. none of us talk that way. <laughs> no. You know, a, a 0.08 decrease in creatinine is not very impressive. And then they go on in figure one to annihilate the y-axis right. <laughs> and compress it so that it looks like a very significant change. But if you look, that y-axis does not start at zero. It starts at 140. And so it, thereby exaggerating the effects. And if you look over time, everything sort of regresses to the mean. Right. You know, I don't think that 155 and 162 are different creatinines. Those, that's got to be within the range of error. So... Uh, I'm not entirely convinced that there's any change at all. Um, although it's statistically significant, I'm not convinced it's clinically significant. Right. Even though, even just despite the four times the fluid <laughs> uh, given in that group. So that's the question. Yeah, good. Yeah. Sorry, the 15% anaphylactoid reaction yep. rate I thought was pretty impressive too. That's a lot higher than we usually see. Um, it's on page 21 Right, they were loosely defined though, right? The anaphylactoid, they said. Several patients defined seven, Actually, 7%? Right. Three, three patients. patients. <laughs> At 7% of their patients. Right. Three people <laughs> so declined to continue. Yeah. That's a lot more than we see with acetaminophen uh, toxicity. And although we, we give our bullets over an hour, that's even, it's comparable to the 15-minute protocol that they did in Australia, if I remember correctly. So right, right. If you, but that's pretty high. If seven percent of your patients are opting out of your therapy, then right. some issues. So that's a great segue into our next talk, okay. into the next paper, which um, 
is the N-acetylcysteine and contrast-induced nephropathy in primary angioplasty paper from uh, the New England Journal. Uh, this is from June 29, 2006, so hot off the press. Um, and it is from the Institute of Cardiology in Milan. A nice place, I imagine. So, uh, <laughs> in, looking at, uh, in looking at this study, this basically uh, sounds uh, constructed quite similar in that it's a prospective study. They actually uh, randomized 354 patients uh, that were consecutive patients presenting um, with uh, acute myocardial infarction in need of primary angioplasty uh, and were all um, deemed to be high risk for uh, this uh, radio contrast induced uh, nephropathy because of some hemodynamic instability, um, the need of the contrast to perform their procedure and study, um, and the lack of time for uh, sufficient prophylaxis, uh, as Nate had talked about earlier in the initial work. Um, so this study, again, uh, looked at 354 patients. There were, uh, patients were assigned to either a standard dose uh, NAC, uh, which is a 600 milligram IV uh, bolus before the angioplasty procedure. Uh, then they subsequently got 600 milligrams orally uh, for the next two days. Uh, the second arm was a double dose of the IV neck, so 1,200 milligram IV bolus, and then 1,200 milligrams orally, uh, twice daily for 48 hours. Uh, or placebo, which again, uh, placebo is defined as the uh, one milliliter per kilogram um, IV fluid bolus. Uh, excuse me, IV fluid saline infusion. So there were... Uh, a there was good randomization, good randomization across uh, patients. So there were about 116, 115 patients um, in each uh, study arm. Uh, after intervention, again, all patients, uh, both treated and controlled, continued to undergo hydration uh, with IV saline uh, at one per kilo of the, uh, per hour uh, for about 12 hours. Uh, the primary endpoints of the study um, was uh, the occurrence of uh, contrast medium induced nephropathy. Uh, and this again was defined as an increase of the serum creatinine of 25% uh, from the baseline value. And this was uh, measured out to 72 hours. Again, this is a debatable outcome as uh, this may have really no clinical relevance. However, specifically addressing Rob's point from earlier, they did take this step further and they asked, you know, that uh, as far as a clinical question whether the prevention of contrast medium induced nephropathy had any effect on clinical outcome. Uh, and the way they uh, characterized this was by looking at the rate of in hospital death or mortality, which does seem to be a robust clinical outcome. Um, I, should, I should mention that these are all angioplasty patients, so they did get uh, in the CCU 5,000 units of heparin. Uh, the the uh, contrast medium that was used was Omnipake, uh, which is a non-ionic, low-osmolality contrast agent, Iohexol. It has 350 milligrams of iodine per milliliter. Um, and post-presentation, uh, patients that did get uh, stent deployment uh, did receive appropriate treatment, including clopidogrel uh, and or ticlodipine uh, and aspirin. Um, so, Moving forward to uh, look at the baseline characteristics, uh, when we look across uh, 
the control group, the standard NAC group, and the high-dose NAC group, we see a good randomization of patients. Um, there were not uh, really any significant outliers uh, as far as age, uh, sex, diabetes, hypertension, uh, smoking, uh, cardiac uh, risk factors, um, or uh, serum creatinine, with the serum creatinine median being 1.01 to 1.06. Um, overall, the contrast medium induced nephropathy occurred in about 66%, excuse me, 66 patients, or roughly 20% uh, of our 352 patients, uh, which is slightly higher than uh, what has previously been reported in the literature. Um, it was about 33% in the control group. Well, they were also, compared to the other study, they were getting a second generation aid instead of third generation, and they were getting a larger amount because they were getting. Coronary angiography. angiography. That's a good point. Um, The rate of contrast medium-induced nephropathy was uh, found to be 33% in the control group, 15% uh, in the standard NAC group, and 8% in the higher-dose NAC group, and these were values that were statistically significant. Um, They they do mention that they performed a multivariate analysis adjusting for age, sex, uh, baseline characteristics, volume of contrast medium, um, and left ventricular uh, function, and uh, that uh, an odds ratio uh, reveals uh, that uh, RCIN uh, in the control group as compared to the standard NAC group was 2.6. Um, overall, the in-hospital mortality uh, was reported as about 6%, or 5.9% to be specific. Uh, it was, uh, interestingly, in the uh, contrast medium-induced nephropathy, excuse me, uh, was significantly higher in patients with contrast-induced uh, nephropathy. And by significantly higher, uh, it was 26% uh, in the control group and 1.4% in the uh, highest-dose group. Yeah, and this answers the sort of the so what question. It's like, so what right. if your creatinine goes up to 1.8? Right. And the answer is, well, you have... A one out of four chance of dying if you have contrast-induced <laughs> nephropathy after an angiogram. Of course, yeah. it's not after other studies, but so that's pretty pretty darn high considering how well we do with angioplasty and other things for the general population. Yeah. So again, I think that's the 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 big piece that this study does add is that there is uh, significant uh, clinical relevance. Now, it's hard to say whether all of that can be attributed to. Um, you know, this, what seems like a small uh, amount of uh, nephropathy. I mean, it, it's not a significant or huge difference between the groups. Again, when you look at serum creatinine levels. Where, uh, where is that again? What, you're saying there's a 25%? 26. It's top of page 277 in the first paragraph. Yeah. yeah, so the people who developed contrast-induced nephropathy, their in-hospital mortality during the same hospitalization was 26%. And those that didn't develop it, no matter which group they were assigned to, um, even if they were assigned to the placebo group, their hospital mortality was only 1.4%. And I think when you read like the 30-day mortality statistics on a lot of these big, um, you know, acute MI studies, it's it's usually on the order of a few percentages. It's like three to five percent. Right. The odds ratio of in-hospital death in the control group, as compared to the standard dose and the high dose NAC groups, was 1.85, which again, um, and and sorry, and 5.43 which we would all agree is uh, fairly impressive. Um, I think, you know, a couple of additional points. So the the proposed mechanism, and this kind of uh, 
goes beyond the earlier work from the rapid study. The mechanism is not just uh, nephro, uh, not just decreased nephrotoxicity, but also uh, that NAC uh, scavenges free oxygen-free radicals, uh, preventing uh, direct oxidative tissue damage. Uh, and they also mentioned something about um, uh, a decreased infarct size and improvement in left ventricular function which may have been reported in previous studies. I uh, did not uh, go back and look at the additional studies they had referenced. Um, but I, I was curious if you guys were aware of that. Work. I, I, I saw that for the first time reading this. It's interesting yeah. to think that maybe some some Cardio po positive cardiovascular effect just getting NAC. Getting NAC, yeah, exactly. As far as preventing myocardial cell death, which may be something above and beyond the death rate from just uh, you know the renal failure induced. You know, I think the other interesting point was they kind of created this four box um, of creatinine clearance and left ventricular uh, ejection fraction percent. And if you had bad creatinine clearance, less than 60 milliliters per minute, and a decreased left ventricular ejection fraction, less than 40 percent, your incidence of contrast nephropathy was, was like 58 percent, which is very high. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, if both of those were good, the incidence was still 11.6 percent. So it wasn't low, um, but um, so those would, two factors are probably the most important. But I, I would be interested, and I didn't read it closely enough to know, is, is that where all the deaths were? No. Well, the patients were well randomized across groups. So no, I know that. But, but the deaths from contrast-induced nephropathy. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. Did it occur people had bad heart failures? So that's the question. That's where yeah. the, right. the deaths were, is that if you have bad ejection fraction and you develop this, then you have a higher chance of death. So yeah. is that in here? Uh, you know, that I do not no, recall seeing in here, actually. I don't yeah, think they remember. did, like, a subgroup no, analysis. They did, but that's a good, that's a great point, that's a great where, point yeah. where it should be. It's like your chance of getting it goes up with your chance of being in poor physiologic health. Right. And then, therefore, your death rate goes up with being in poor physiologic health. They did break out uh, the volume of contrast, again, because they're focused on contrast medium. They broke out the... The, and said that the benefit of the high-dose NAC was greatest in patients receiving the largest volumes of contrast medium, which they said uh, were greater than 140 milliliters. The other thing that, that this study does, that other studies have not done, is they do uh, kind of set up this dose-dependent protective effect of NAC. So cumulative doses, you know, were pretty small compared to previous work. We're talking about 3,000 milligrams or 6,000 milligrams. And the study in the rapid, the rapid study we were just talking about had something like uh, 14,000 uh, milligrams of NAC. So again, these are smaller amounts, but they do point to a potential uh, dose-dependent protective effect. Again, there was no saline bolus uh, arm to study whether part of this effect was just uh, beneficial uh, IV fluid. Uh, hydration. Yeah. Yeah, as I kind of mentioned the other day, we've sort of been doing this two ends of this dose finding with N-acetylcysteine. With Tylenol, we started with this 72-hour protocol and went down to 48 and 36 and now 21, and we finally feel comfortable with that. With the renal protective effect of NAC, you know, we started with this low dose of 600 milligrams and 600 BID and a 1,200 and the other article, the typical NAC. We're sort of working our way up to find out what what the right amount or the minimal amount of NAC we can give somebody and protect their kidneys. So we're kind of approaching two different problems from two ends of the uh, dosing uh, findings uh, spectrum. So do, do they mention what is the what was the volume of the bolus? 
didn't see that. Um, they give the milligrams of that, but not what is uh, was in solution. Yeah, they didn't mention yeah, how it was concentrated, right. but um, so we don't really know if there was a polis of fluid given with the NAC. Well, they had a placebo. There was a one-one-one randomization to either the standard dose, the double dose, or placebo. Um, I assume that means that the placebo got the same volume, but just had it as normal saline this solution. But they don't specify now. See, they didn't say that. So I assume I didn't assume that. I actually assumed that they. NAC group got, you know, 600 milligrams of NAC in some solution as a bolus, but that the placebo group just got their one per kilo of fluid and did not get a bolus of fluid. Um, that might be, oh yeah, it's just unreported. Yeah. Now, right. if you go back to the combination of left ventricular failure with renal failure. Yeah. So, because, it, and how that might influence these results, it obviously limits what, how you can treat the heart failure too. I mean, you're not sure. going to use ARVs or base inhibitors uh, likely in that particular armamentarium is not as scary as if they didn't have the Alright. At the end, they also mentioned that NAC inhibits platelet aggregation and so again, the, what the article more than anything proved to me was that they're there likely is benefit to using NAC in patients undergoing primary angioplasty, but it still remains ill-defined uh, despite some robust studies. Uh, I don't know if people have other thoughts. Yeah. I mean, the trend is certainly there. And, yeah. And, there's, and the additive, and I assume someday, if it hasn't been done already, someone will probably do a meta-analysis of all these trials and the differences there. And... Um, I think the recommendation would be when you're getting this high-volume urgent procedure where you have to go to the cath lab in an hour or less, which is what our goal is, is perhaps on top of everything else we're throwing at them, metropolol and aspirin and heparin, maybe NAC, dose to be determined, needs to be added uh, even before you know the creatinine because sometimes they're off to the cath lab before the creatinine comes back. So is our group doing any of that, do you know? No, not aware no. of it. Not aware. They, I mean... Regarding your question about um, the left ventricular function, you know, on page 2780, they do break out these groups in terms of just worse than, less than 40 or greater than 40%, and clearly there's a huge worsening in contrast medium-induced nephropathy, um, and there's still benefit amongst the other groups. It's, it's diminished. Um, but again, I, you know, I don't know if you can really draw any robust conclusions from it, so... Well, let's lead into the hotter, hotter off the presses. Two articles from 2007. Ray Lee is going to talk about the, now these are beginning to be named just like the cardiac studies. These right. are the, the Reno and the remedial study. So we'll let you talk about those um, in order looking at yet another thing we may have to consider adding besides NAC, and that's bicarb or not. Right. Uh, so the first article I'm going to talk about is the RENO study, R-E-N-O, and this is a study out of Spain. Um, the full title is The Reno Protective Effect of Hydration with Sodium Bicarb uh, Plus Anacetocysteine in Patients Undergoing Emergency Percutaneous Coronary Intervention. Um, this is a uh, prospective uh, randomized control single-center study. Uh, they have a total of 100... Um, 11 patients, and this is powered um, to a 
uh, size of presumptive a 20% uh, uh, contrast-induced uh, nephropathy in the control group. So this is a two-arm study. In group A, which is a study group, they have 56 patients. And this is the group that receives um, bicarb and NAC. And their protocol is a bolus of uh, five mils per cake an hour of bicarb one hour before the procedure. And uh, in addition to that, uh, patients in this group get uh, 2,400 milligrams of NAC. Uh, again, I said 2,400 milligrams of NAC um, along with the bicarb bolus an hour before. And this is followed after the procedure by a, um, a 1.5 mil per cake uh, bicarb uh, infusion for 12 hours along with two doses of uh, 600 milligrams NAC PO. And that is the study group. And in the control group, is, which is what they use for the institutional protocol, is a, uh, a one milliliter uh, per cake per hour uh, for 12 hours of uh, normal saline infusion after. No, no infusion before, but only after uh, the procedure. And in this group, uh, patients also get two uh, doses of uh, 600 milligrams of NAC. And their patient population is um, all patients with uh, myocardial infarction treated with uh, primary PCI or rescue PCI or any high-risk non-STEMIs, uh, such as ongoing chest pain, hemodynamic uh, instability. And uh, all the uh, procedures are performed within the first 12 hours from onset of symptoms. Um, and the contrast medium they use is a low osmo, uh, non-ionic contrast. It's called ionopro. Um, and uh, this is a second generation. Just right, the second generation. It's not quite a non-osmo. Uh, uh, so it's a low osmo, not an iso osmo. Right. So the right. three generations are high, low, and, and iso. So second generation low osmo. Right. Uh, so their primary endpoint is acute. Uh, uh, Contrast-induced nephropathy defined as an absolute increase in the serum creatinine of 0.5 or more three days after the uh, uh, the, the uh, PCI, um, and uh, let me turn your attention to Table One here, and let's look at the baseline creatinine. And you'll note that there, uh, the baseline creatinine in both groups are randomized, and they're uh, 1.0 in both groups, uh, with GFR for about 75 in both groups. Um, and uh, but also bear in mind, this is a group who uh, is uh, also. Um, uh, relatively high risk considering that this, they are going a uh, urgent uh, percutaneous uh, coronary intervention with uh, pre-existing heart failure, uh, possible complication with hemodynamic instability, um, and um, and I also like to turn your attention to Table Two, uh, and please note the volume of contrast volume that we use in both groups is uh, quite a bit higher than what we've been hearing. Uh, 290 for the for Group A, and uh, 280 for Group B. And from our discussion before, you remember that uh, a high volume contrast is considered greater than 140. So uh, these folks are getting uh, quite a lot of uh, contrast that uh, almost twice as much as what we consider to be high uh, 
which, which I think is kind of the norm when you're doing one of these, you know, coronary studies where you keep after re-injecting and re-injecting right. over again to see where you're at. Right. Uh, but uh, as you see from our next, next study, uh, it's, there's quite a bit of difference in the volume contrast that we used. Uh, but but uh, so the result uh, is that in group A, um, in the primary endpoints, they have one patient out of 56, that is 1.8%, uh, that... Uh, had uh, that met the de definition of uh, contrast-induced nephropathy, whereas in their study, in their control group, group B, 12 out, out of 55 uh, patients, that's 21.8% uh, develop uh, contrast-induced nephropathy, and their calculation is that the number, the number needed to treat uh, this data is five, with a, um, and interestingly, in group A, they. They find well, that, that, that's not the, how many you need to treat to do the study. That was the number you need to treat five patients to prevent, to, to prevent, prevent right, a I single case. Of, that. Yeah. Right. Um, so, in case you didn't get that, uh, the number needed to treat I was referring to is uh, five, and that is the number of patients uh, needed to prevent one adverse outcome as defined by the study. Um, in group A, they found no relationship uh, between the volume of contrast used and change in creatinine. Uh, whereas in group B, interestingly, they did find a high, higher creatinine increase that correlates with higher volume uh, of contrast used. Um, one out of uh, one patient from group A, that is a study group, had uh, acute aneurysm renal failure, whereas uh, compared to seven people in group A, developed that uh, uh, that endpoint um, and. Table three, which I'm not going to go into, uh, basically summarizes what uh, I have just said. Um, so, um, uh, in conclusion, I felt that overall this was a, a fairly well done study. The main problem I had or uh, issue I had with this study was that there was no uh, saline infusion before uh, that the procedure, which I uh, suspect might have elevated their control uh, uh, result, um, and but I, the things I like about the study is uh, it is that uh, um, this is uh, done in a pseudo emergent uh, setting that has uh, more uh, perhaps a clinical uh, similarity than patients we encounter in ER. And if you look at their preparation, it's an hour before um, before the procedure, um, which uh, you know it's potentially a feasible uh, uh, protocol from an ER standpoint, uh, even for uh, the urgent and uh, needed contrast uh, radiology studies. Hey, if you look more closely at the methodology. It's not really a placebo-controlled trial, right? Right. So again, if you were to set this up more ideally, you would want to test bicarb alone against bicarb plus NAC, mm -hmm. right. and so not give any NAC to the placebo group. I don't understand why they gave the NAC to. I think part, part of it is in 2007. I think ethics committees have have already bought into the concept that. You cannot not give somebody knack and getting a this much dye. It's almost to the point where the accepted norm is, as they say, their accepted protocol is to give them knack, 600 milligrams BID. Um, 
I don't know if they can create it on yeah, a complete that placebo, complete yeah. placebo arm where they don't get anything. I mean, it, Do we know? Ours, is ours. that here? Yeah, that's what I was saying. No, I mean, that's, well, that's in, that's in the UK. Done in yeah. Italy. Yeah, exactly. So it seems like at least their institutional protocol yeah, is to use NAC, which, you know, may not necessarily correlate sure. with, you know, Same every institution. Um, no, this is no, the UK group. Uh, oh, is this the UK group? Oh, this is the Spain group. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I think the question still is, I'm not sure if bolus fluid is driving a lot of this or not. And by adding the bicarb to the mix, it's just another variable that you have to explain away. It doesn't make sense. It's just, it's just sodium bloating in a different form. Right. Yeah. Confusing us. It's like Smoking mirrors. So will this last trial answer that question, right? Yeah, they do it right. <laughs> well, let's maybe we need to study here. We got to come up with something that starts with R and a bunch of letters. Out. Yeah. So the last, uh, <laughs> or my next study is uh, it's called a remedial trial. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, a European study based out out of Italy, um, and the title was the Renal Insufficiency Following Contrast Media Administration Trial. And um, I'm just sketching my notes here. Uh, this is a uh, two-center study, uh, double-blind, randomized uh, perspective trial, and uh, they kind of have an interesting uh, uh, bend in China. Uh, to to uh, the, basically, the study question is. Um, uh, seems like antioxidant effects has a significant uh, effect on uh, rescuing or decreasing uh, incidence of contraindused nephropathy. And uh, the main question is would uh, any additional, if you add several antioxidants together, are you going to have beneficial effects? Uh, so this is a three-arm study. One arm has a, a normal saline plus NAC. And the uh, second arm has bicarb plus NAC. Third study has normal saline plus uh, ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C. Um, plus, plus NAC. Plus NAC. Plus NAC. Plus NAC. Yeah. I'm surprised right. they didn't have a grape juice somewhere. <laughs> um, so their protocol in their normal saline and NAC group is uh, one milk per cake an hour for 12 hours before and 12 hours after. And, uh, and I should note that all groups uh, received uh, NAC PO uh, 1200 milligrams twice a day, the day before and the day of the procedure. Uh, so all groups uh, received NAC. And uh, the second arm is the bicarb plus NAC. Uh, this they, their protocol is three mils per cake an hour for an hour before and and one mil per cake an hour for six hours after and also during the procedure. And their vitamin C vitamin C arm is uh, uh, basically it's the same uh, normal saline infusion rate, but they give um, three grams of vitamin C two hours before, and this is continuing uh, two grams. Uh, the night of and two grams the next morning. Um, and uh, the total number of patients is 326. And I should know that they, um, they, they, their aim is to study uh, uh, patients who already have uh, 
uh, renal dysfunction, uh, all patients uh, have uh, chronic kidney disease with creatinine greater than 2 and GFR of less than 40. Uh, this you know, tends to be about stage 3 uh, chronic kidney disease. Uh, and the uh, contrast they use is a isoosmolar non-ionic contrast. Which is a the newer newest generation and uh, so just so just walking in they were doing what they think is the European state of the art which is the IV hydration chronic protocol using the best agent third generation agent right and then whether or not NAC or vitamin C or combination makes or bicarb makes a difference right um, so just re just to kind of reiterate uh, three groups all groups receive NAC PO and one arm is normal saline with NAC, one arm is bicarb with NAC, and the third is normal saline and vitamin C. Uh, and their average uh, contrast volume in this study is about 170. And note that that is uh, a contrast from the study before, which is, which is about 280, if I remember correctly. Um, and their primary endpoint is uh, an increase of uh, 25% in creatinine at 48 hours or at the need for dialysis. So this is their results. Um, group 1, um, this is a normal saline and NAC arm. They had 11 patients out of 111. That is about 10% uh, of the patients uh, met the criteria for uh, contrast-induced nephropathy. And the bicarb and NAC arm only two patients out of 108 patients, that is about 2%, um, develop uh, nephropathy. And the vitamin C arm uh, has 11 patients in that group. Uh, it's also about 10.3% develop nephropathy. So the, the group that stood out is the bicarb plus NAC arm, which uh, according to this study uh, seems to be uh, the most beneficial and um, so, so presumably both of these got a little bit of a bolus. If you just throw out the sort of vitamin C part of the study, you know, they either got a bolus with bicarb or a bolus with saline going in, and then NAC. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Right. No, is that true? Uh, I don't know. Like no one just got the typical saline. Yeah, just saline. No right. Bolus. Oh, and okay. then. Bicarb got the bolus. The bicarb got a three per kilo bolus an hour before. Right. Again, this horse is dead. Well, that, that is just they, they haven't just, they haven't teased out what the real issue may be, and the real issue may just be volume loading. Right. So so what's the circulating blood volume? What is it like six seven liters? Yeah, five liters. So one liter. So a twenty percent dilution of your circulating blood volume prior to contrast infusion, and then you put this contrast in there. I mean it. Intuitively, I'm not I'm not a high-powered researcher from Milan, but it makes sense to me that that would you know decrease the nephrotoxicity of any drug. They they, they do go on to note that uh, in terms of total volume, uh, the the bicarb arm, which is the one that shows uh, significant benefits, uh, is the one that has the less amount of volume, about a liter, as opposed to 1.5 liters in the other two arms that did not show. Uh, it's still uh, significance in benefits. That's because it looks like they, they only continued as their six hours of the procedure versus 12 hours. 
for the infusion. For the bicarb. Right. For six hours. Right. Which is this I believe it's, it's what they it's still suggesting that the right. the treatment should be prior right at right, the, at the right before the right because again you want to right after you get your study you want to dilute as much of the circulating contrast medium as you can mm -hmm. um, I guess um, in conclusion I th I think that the things I like about the studies uh, this these are a group of patients with uh, baseline cranium 2.0 and I think there's even more importance to trying to prevent any decline in the renal function and um, so these are a group of patients with poor baseline, they're, they're increased risk. Um, and, and, and with their most aggressive protocol, if you want to consider it that, their incidence is only 1.9% or 2% of contrast-induced neuropathy, right. which is pretty good. And however, what their endpoint is, what this is translate to, you know, if you take baseline creatinine 2.0, 25% of creatinine means a GFR of really 36 and kind of 25-ish, is that a, how much clinical difference is that going to play out? Uh, that's, I think that's definitely not, uh, remains to be seen. So if you guys are going to design a study, because we, we have to do a lot of urgent studies, a lot of dye studies, we do P studies, we do angiography for the uh, PCI, we, we do a lot of uh, abdominal CTs. So if you're going to design a study using any of those groups and sort of like the yet to be unanswered question, what, what, what would be our arms, or two or three arms? Well, I think you would do a bolus fluid arm before the contrast injection. You would do the one meg per keg per hour. Yeah, so you'd have four arms. Control. Basal, like the basal saline rate, you'd have the bolus just saline, you'd have the bolus saline plus NAC, um, and then the last one you could do the NAC and bicarb. and bicarb. Or you could just do bicarb alone since we already have NAC plus bicarb data uh, just to see what the protective benefit of, of bicarb versus the NAC is. Because this is, I mean, potentially, you know, especially with the previous data of, like, mortality benefit, I mean, mm -hmm. this is huge. Think about how many casts we do every year. I mean, this is, this is like, protocol for every patient that comes in as a STEMI or acute coronary syndrome. Well, no, no, I think we do a lot of dye studies in the ER yeah. on people who we, we see as emergent and maybe some of it's time emergent because we need to get the study done quick and get the patient through quick. And some of it's really emergent, like do do they really have appendicitis or not and we have to do a abdominal CT. So it would be nice to know we're not hurting people's kidneys in the process and so what's the simplest way to get that done uh, with the right drug, the right degree. Of, I think all of us are somewhat hydra hydrating and fluid resuscitating these right. folks, but I don't think everybody who's normal bulimic is getting <coughs> a bolus of you know, 500 cc's of saline prior to their study, at least not right now. So, I mean, it's, yeah, I agree. There's some unanswered questions, but it's, it's gotten to the point in several places, obviously more so in Europe, where NAC is, is just part of the yeah. protocol and yeah. you can't not, not use it. It is kind of important to remember that these all these studies are kind of different groups of patients. Right. Mm -hmm. Some are urgent with normal renal function to begin yeah. with. Some are 12 hours preparation right. of the bed. Pretty significant renal injury to start with. It's really hard to know how it translates to our Well, I think not, not to mention that uh, contrast for a CAT scan or an abdominal CT or a PE is just so, such so much lower volume. Their risk has to be much lower than this group that's getting a 300, you know, uh, for a PCI. All right. 
be hard to do. It'd be hard to do a study in the emergency department on people getting abdominal CTs. You have to find a few thousand people with elevated creatinines that need a CAT scan of their belly. So, which may have been yeah. hard. Well, actually, you did all covers. If you just did yeah. all covers and see if there's any subgroup that yeah, the, pulls out. The risk, the risk of, of contrast induced nephropathy in a patient with a normal creatinine and no diabetes getting an abdominal CT is pretty low. Uh, less than it's less than two percent. Fraction of a percent. The problem, though, it arises with our trauma patients, where we give them the the contrast load for the. Uh, one study, and mm-hmm. then we see something abnormal and say, oh gosh, we need to do another study. And you know, yeah. you're, you're doing two hits on top of within a short period of time. And that, I think, we have quite a few of. All right. So, more to, more to come on whether or not to use NAT. So, and is how there much. any consensus right now? I mean, what do, who, do you use NAT? I, I, if someone has an elevated creatinine and I have time, I'll give them NAC. Up to recently, I've been using the 600 NAC, because I think that's what the earlier studies have shown. With this data, there's probably no downside to using 1,200 NAC, and there's probably very little downside if I have another hour to wait of loading it with a typical Tylenol overdose protocol. But I think the data from the 1,200 milligrams, which you can easily load that over 10 or 15 minutes without risk of anaphylactoid reaction, it's probably reasonable, probably not very expensive, and probably not, um, you know, going to change the, uh, as far as any risk to the patient. But it may help protect their kidneys. Because then you get in the argument with the radiologist, am I going to do this study at all? And how do I get the answer that I need to get? Um, do I need to get a consultant first? The consultant has to say, yeah, we really do need the belly scan to rule out appendicitis or something else um, before the nephrologist says, yeah, I'll do it. But... I just want to make sure the patient's consented. You know, we all get into those arguments all the time. So, I don't know. What do you do? Rob? I give fluids. <laughs> I give fluids, too. Yeah, I don't, I haven't used that. Maybe I need this time. Do you know, in the, I mean, we There's a bicarb it. study, too, which is bicarb, I think, and, you know, we didn't cover that. There's a, it's a lot, tons of articles out of but yeah, down. I, I think it's important to, to, again, note that most of these studies are done on angioplasties with high volume. Uh, you know, that is really a totally different thing than what yeah. we're dealing with. And we don't necessarily see that because we're transferring them off to the cardiologist. Right. Well, I think we don't follow up. Well, no. The people right. we discharge, we never see what happens to them. The people <laughs> we admit, I we, think we don't know what happens to them, but there may be data out there. I mean, I think it's important because we provide, I mean, we do the, you know, you give them the aspirin, you load them with heparin, so... I mean, should we be ha- hanging a bag of IV NAC on all these people as they're being rolled up to the angio suite? Especially since we lead the world in, you know, cardiac cats, and it doesn't seem like that trend is going to diminish. It sounds like it calls for a good multi-center study, but there may be enough clinical material just at least to do a pilot study at one institution or something. Else. Yeah. Jump on that. Do you, do you know with the cetadope, I mean, if they're multi-vial, uh, or if you if you open up a vial of acetidote, if you're just charged for that? Because yeah. in terms of what you're saying with the 1,200 milligrams, the cost probably is not per milligram. It's per the vial. Break the vial open, yeah. I think it's pretty much you open up uh, a vial, you're, you're charged for the whole vial, whether you use 600 milligrams out of it or a gram and a half out of it or whatever it is you want so yeah, you're stuck with that. You but I mean, talk about total cost of a hospitalization for percutaneous angioplasty, it's probably a 
hey, drop in the bucket behind there, 2, 3, B, you know, and oh, hit her sure. and everything else. Do you know what the cost is for the I don't have that now. I can find out for you. We'll look it up. We'll send it around. All right. Uh, on a final note of interest, um, talk about, so, well, maybe someday, you know, we'll all just be doing these fancy MRI, MRA. The data on that is pretty darn good. Well, to just throw a cannonball across the bow of that to talk about the role of gadolinium in this newly recognized syndrome, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. So it's... Uh, it's on some of my favorite topics. One is the power of early case reports in identifying a trend. And the second one is the off-label use of drugs that we think are safe. <laughs> um, so let's get into that. So this new disease, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, which was previously called nephrogenic fibrosing dermopathy because it was mostly a skin disease, is an idiopathic, at least until now it's been an idiopathic, disorder uh, that occurs in the skin and it has the symmetric indurated plaques and papules with irregular borders and it occurs mostly on the trunk and the extremities. And in some cases have systemic features where they have similar pathology that occurs in the muscles, the pleura, the pericardium, the myocardium, potentially the diaphragm leading to diaphragmatic um, paralysis. And the risk factors seem to be patients who had some degree of either acute or chronic renal failure. And um, some of the downsides of this study is they also are hypercoagulable and they have thrombotic tendencies, so they may be at increased risk for PE and DVT and things like that. So I'll talk about two case reports um, since we're on an international uh, trend here. This has occurred in Singapore, and this was a, a group um, written up in this year, January 2007. So in Clinical Dermatology, a journal we all read uh, religiously, um, it was a 42-year-old man, um, had swelling in his legs for a few months, two months, and um, he had chronic renal failure for greater than 20 years, uh, diffuse mesangioproliferative glomerulonephritis to be uh, exact, and he had peritoneal dialysis and hemodialysis for the last three years, got a transplant, it didn't do so well, he went back on hemodialysis. And he had a CT angiogram, which had a 90% stenosis to the upper pole of his transplanted renal artery. And that was confirmed when they did an MRA um, using 10 micromoles of gadolinium. Um, and then prior to the MRA, his uh, BUN was 44, um, and his bicarb was 20, and his creatinine using the micromoles per liter was about 600 micromoles per liter, so greatly elevated from normal, should be below 110. Um, he received hemodialysis three days post his MRA, not immediately. He underwent successful renal artery angioplasty, and then this disease blossomed. Persistent rash, swelling, lower extremities, um, hyperpigmented, shiny plaques and papules, forearm, buttocks, thighs, legs, of no, no facial involvement. They did a skin biopsy and they found the classic findings, which goes, goes with the disease, which is spindle cells and dermal fibrosis, and a very specific finding that diffusely positive for this um, uh, marker CD34, the clinical histopathic marker, and it made a diagnosis of uh, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, NSF. Um, he was treated with some calcopotriol and uh, some of the lesions softened, but his creatinine level eventually improved. 
second individual was an older gentleman, 76, had chronic uh, renal failure, hypertensive nephrosclerosis, and peripheral vascular disease. He had a bilateral fempop bypass and had pain in his leg. And so they did, because he had some renal failure, they did an MRA with 10 micromoles of gadolidiumide in January of 05. Showed occlusion of his left popliteal artery, mild to moderate stenosis at the junction of the left comoral and external iliacs, and severe stenosis on the right. Prior to his MRA, his BUN was 45, his bicarb was 20, and his creatinine was 747 micromoles per liter, again, normal being below 110. He had hemodialysis not till nine days after this procedure. He had successful angioplasty of his blocked arteries, but he developed bilateral wet gangrene of his legs and this ectema skin crash on his shin, had a repeat MRA a few months later, and then he went and had hemodialysis two days after that, and then over the next uh, few months he developed this classic non-tender, non-fertic rash, arms and thigh for a few months, skin biopsies were taken, CD34 positive fibroblast, and again, um, diagnostic for this uh, fibrotic disease, and unfortunately he went on to have knee amput- above the knee amputation, sepsis, and died of nosocomial pneumonia. So basically, what are we talking about, NSF, NFD? I guess the terminology I think that's prevalent in the literature now is NSF. Uh, Again, is nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. Uh, It's really hadn't been identified at all before 1997, which suggests that perhaps it's either a newly recognized disease or due to a newly recognized toxin. And lo and behold, gadolinium is a contrast agent that's only been available since about 1988. Um, and it was generally thought to be safe. Um, and then more and more of these reports have shown that uh, patients who receive MRAs with the gadolinium, especially perhaps with an underlying metabolic acidosis, um, may be at risk for this anywhere from two to four weeks after receiving these procedures. Um, and they noticed that their two patients had normal acid-based status, throwing perhaps some doubt on whether you need to be acidotic uh, beforehand. And it occurs in association not only with MRA, but also MRIs. And again, it has to do with how much contrast is used, because they use three to four, three to five times as much contrast with an MRA than with an MRI. So what are these new agents, the gadolinium agents? They're thought to be completely safe. They're not really well cleared from the body um, with renal failure. Gadolinium is, if you look at the periodic table elements, it's, there's two long lines of elements at the bottom. Uh, one of them is called the lanthanide series. It's on there. It's gadolinium. It's in the three-plus stage, and it's bound with several other um, products. But unfortunately, these chelated products tends to go what's called transmetallation, which means other metals in our body, zinc, copper, calcium, if, it, if this persists in your body, can substitute for the gadolinium in the contrast agent. The gadolinium, free-cut gadolinium is released, and the gadolinium precipitates in a lot of soft tissues, including the kidneys, including the skin, including the muscles, and puts you at risk for NSF. And the severity of renal impairment decreases the clearance of the drug, of the gadolinium, and increases the risk for developing NSF. And um, more recently, the FDA has advised that imaging methods other than MRI or MRA but with a gadolinium-based contrast agent should be selected in patients with moderate to severe end-stage uh, kidney disease, which unfortunately we would go into these studies because we thought it was safe in patients who had kidney disease because we knew these contrast agents we just finished talking about were, were not so good. Um, 
it's a disease of aberrant fibroplasia. Um, there's a dual positivity for the CD34 and this pro-collagen in the spindle cells. Circulating fibroblasts are involved in normal wound production, but they tend to be relocated to the dermis and a variety of other organs that are affected by NSF. There may be some role for transforming growth factor as far as a modulating effect on fibrocytes, which converts them into myofibroblasts, which then are, are responsible for overproduction of these extracellular components and leading to disease characterized mostly by fibrosis. Um, the clinical presentation, as noted, these lesions occur. They may be painful, they may be pruritic, or they may not be. 